I had spent so much of my life waiting for my father to choose healing, to choose himself, and therefore to choose me. This time, I knew I needed to do that for myself. Hello, my loves, and welcome to the Kindred Sage podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Brianna, and I'm on a mission to energetically up-level my life and teach you how to do the same. To raise your vibrations, re-examine your perception of self, and nourish the confidence to create an extraordinary experience here on Earth. Are you ready to expand with me? Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the Kindred Sage podcast. Thank you for hitting play today and connecting with me through this three-part series of my story and my journey so far here on Earth. In part one, The Caterpillar, I covered my first 14 years and the constant turbulence of abandonment and abuse, emotional, physical, psychological, from all caregivers in my childhood. And I also explained how my father got to a very dangerous stage of numbing his own grief um, and the decimation that it inflicted on our family. In part two, The Cocoon, I shared how I walked through a portal into a parallel universe where I got a second chance at a loving caregiver relationship. I also graduated high school and got a bachelor's degree and ultimately became the stability that I didn't have as a child. I kind of clutched onto as secure and stable lifestyle that I could so that I wouldn't have to relive my childhood. And then my Saturn return hit. And I'll give you some cosmic cliff notes here. A Saturn return happens approximately every 29 and a half to 30 years. And this is how long it takes the planet Saturn to orbit around the sun and return fully to the same place it was in the sky when you were born. Generally, it returns for approximately three years, and the Saturn return is known in the astrological world as the teacher because it ushers in big karmic lessons that break you open to a new level of consciousness. The context of this lesson can be associated with the zodiac sign that the asteroid Chiron was in when you were born. And the asteroid Chiron is known as the wounded healer. It's kind of the key to unlocking that karmic path. And my Chiron is in Cancer, which represents the wound of family and abandonment. And I'd say that this Saturn return period started right around my reunion with my father, which was January 2018, so when I was about 29 and a half years old, imagine that, and it apexed with a bang when I received the call from Scripps Memorial Hospital in November the following year, 2019, when I was just over 31, and it culminated with my great metamorphosis in fall 2020, summer fall 2020, when I made a huge move that you'll hear about in this episode and came home a completely different woman at 32 years old. So that is the big transition period of my three-year Saturn return. We will talk about all of that, unpack all of that in this episode. So if you haven't listened to part one or two yet, please pause, scroll down, and start there first because 
quite a bit has led up to this episode, and those previous episodes will provide deeper context to the complexity of what is about to take place in my evolution. Okay, with that said, let's move into the third phase of my life, which I have deemed the butterfly because it has been the most transformative, freeing, vibrant, vulnerable experience of my incarnation here on earth. But before we get to the wing spreading, I gotta take it back to the cracking of my cocoon because that phone call from the hospital and the shocking news that my father was in a coma was the start of it all. And according to their records, he had been drinking heavily. He drove home to his girlfriend's house, couldn't get out of his own car. His girlfriend tried to help him out of the car, and he stumbled back and hit his head on the sidewalk. She called 911, and an ambulance took him to the hospital where they took his vitals and found his blood alcohol content to be 0.478. They said, I don't know how he was alive. That is just, it was bonkers when I heard that number. But they had to sedate him at that point to relieve pressure in his head and to treat his injury. And the nurse said when he came to, he started suffering from pretty intense withdrawals and he was getting angry and aggressive about being in the hospital and wanting to go home. And it got to the point that the providers felt it was safer for him and the staff if he were sedated again, because he he couldn't go home yet. Medically, he could not go home yet, but he was getting very irrational and they put him under. He had been in the hospital at this point when I was receiving this news. He had been in the hospital for two weeks and he wasn't waking up from that sleep. And so they were asking me what to do next. And my mind was spinning. I couldn't comprehend what the nurse was saying. All I could think about was him alone at the hospital. His years of numbing and abuse and lying had left him without any family or support system outside of me and his girlfriend at the time. And she hadn't even thought to let me know that he was incapacitated. And so I was livid. I was pissed. And I demanded immediately all medical decisions be routed through me. I requested a CT scan to monitor brain activity. And the doctor actually reported back with signs of a small stroke that had most likely occurred while he was sedated. I asked them to continue response testing and providing bedside care until I could get there in person. And I flew down to San Diego and rushed to the hospital. And I slowly approached the ICU doors and took a deep breath, hit the buzzer, and the doors opened for me. And the nurse came out and said, I'll walk you to his room. And as I approached, I just remember feeling so overwhelmed with fear. I was so scared of the heartbreak that lie ahead. There he was, looking like a giant in a twin-size bed hooked up to machines and tubes for each of his bodily functions. 
His skin was yellow and clammy, and his torso and his hands were inflated like balloons. And the attending nurse came in to tell me that they were going to change his uh, bed pads before the doctor made his rounds. And I asked why they were so wet as I watched him pull them out from underneath him. Then she told me it was because his body wasn't filtering fluids, so it was literally leaking out of his skin. Like, that is an awful state for a human body to be in. And the doctor came in to do a response test, and he repeated his name and, you know, tapped on his chest a few times and had me say a few things. There was nothing. There was no response. And he informed me of the medical side of the situation. My dad's internal organs were failing. That's why his torso was so inflated. His kidneys, his liver, his gallbladder, all all of it was failing. So we talked through what it would look like if he did miraculously wake up. And the doctor told me he would need around-the-clock care and most likely would be bedridden for the rest of his life not to mention all of the dialysis and or transplants he would have to go through with the current state of his organs. And it was at that point that I realized what was being asked of me. And I left the hospital to collect my thoughts and make a few phone calls. And I called my aunt, his sister, that we had lived with for a while um, before I moved to Northern California. And I knew that she had distanced herself from him, you know, to protect her family, but I also knew she loved him dearly and would want to graciously part ways. I also called my half-siblings, even though I and he hadn't spoke to them in years. It just felt like the right thing to do to offer them a chance to say goodbye. And I met them actually at the hospital that afternoon. And to my surprise, they walked into the lobby with my stepmom. And that was the first time I had seen her since... I had filed the restraining order when I was 14. (laughs) And I walked up to them and I looked right at her and she said, hey, Chels. And I gave her a hug. And then I took my sister and brother upstairs to see our dad. And in those moments of hearing their parting thoughts and hearing them kind of process some of the emotions that were coming up, I felt a big shift of empathy toward the entirely different relationship that they had had with him. And they said goodbye, and I walked them out. And that was the last time I have seen either of them in person. Then the next day, I met my aunt and uncle at the hospital. And my aunt held a lot of grief for the distance she put between them. And she kept telling him she was sorry for ignoring him and giving up on him. She shared some stories of his wild youth in La Jolla and his joy rides in his Porsche, (laughs) and her perception of his shadows and his struggles and his journey. And it was interesting to witness. And then his girlfriend arrived, and within a few minutes of her being in the room, she became hysterical about the state he was in, demanding that I free him from his pain. And I'm not proud to say this, but I lost it. (laughs) I, I could not bear the accusatory tone and emphatic demands. That that was the last thing that my tender heart could absorb. So I firmly told her to say her goodbyes and leave. And when she had gone and my aunt and uncle had gone, I turned down the lights in the room and I sat with my dad. And I just watched his chest rise and fall 
to the rhythm of the machines next to him, noticing every flinch of his face and every cringe of his jaw, hoping, hoping that just maybe he would wake up. And about an hour later or so, the doctor came in and asked, are you ready? And with tears streaming down my face, I couldn't even say a word. I just shook my head yes. And he motioned to the nurse to come in and proceed. And she removed all the tubes and turned off the machines as the doctor hooked up the last medication to allow my dad's body to relax into the transition without pain. And they told me that I could stay with him for the remaining time, that it might take a little while. And so I pulled the chair up close and I held his hand for hours and I told him how deeply I loved him and how I always had despite the struggles and disappointments and that I understood he experienced immense suffering in his 64 years of life that it really must have been so hard to carry all that heaviness with him for so long and to feel so lost for most of his life. I told him that he no longer had to suffer and it was time to release the trauma of his lifetime. I told him I forgave him for everything, this included, and I watched intently as his breathing slowed and witnessed when he stopped inhaling altogether. I called the nurse in and she checked him, looked at me, and nodded her head. And so I gave his hand one last squeeze, then whispered, you're free. And with tears and snot rolling down my face, as would be a given in this situation, I gathered my things quickly and started walking to the door. And the nurse stepped in front of me and she hugged me so tight. And she said, I'm really sorry you have to go through this alone. And in that moment, my heart cracked wide open. And I realized I'm alone. I am so very alone. (laughs) Three years ago today, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, November 10th, three years ago, was the day I made the decision to say goodbye to my father. And in a total state of shock and tunnel vision, I ran out of that hospital and went straight to the hotel room, shut all of the curtains, and cried until my eyes were dehydrated. And I couldn't get out of that bed. My eyes were swollen shut, and I could barely eat or drink water. (laughs) I was in a state of just complete despair. And I caught a flight home a few days later and tried to go about life as normal. Definitely was wearing a mask of normal, but... I couldn't think straight, and I had no idea what to do next. And I felt completely numb to life and everything around me. And I was dropping into a deep depression that was exacerbated by the notion that I was completely alone, even with my boyfriend and my foster parents and others trying to console me. I was disassociating in every aspect, and I felt my life force flatlining. And I turned to excessive partying to mask the depression, 
but that only magnetized more toxicity and density into my life. Like many mornings of really bad headaches, really bad hangovers, and not remembering the night before. Like blacking out became almost normal, which is nothing I thought I would experience or be doing to myself. Many fights with my boyfriend about insecurities and accusations and anything that struck a chord. I was taking it out on him. He was, uh, I don't know how else to say it. He was my grief punching bag. And many manipulative friendships that encouraged toxic behavior and irrational decisions. And I would often wake up crying. My outer world was mirroring my inner world. It was, it was all falling apart. My dad's girlfriend was texting often to ask what I was going to do for his funeral and when I planned to come down to get his car out of her driveway. I had to file all the paperwork and order death certificates And I got packages of mail from his girlfriend filled with bills and like overdue child support. And I was terrified that somehow all of his debt was going to fall on me. So I chose to ignore a lot of it, just like I was doing with pretty much all my other problems. And during that time, I heard about a potential job in Texas. And I had been to a friend's wedding out there. Actually, about a month before all of this went down with my dad. So that quick visit gave me a taste of the area. And I really liked the idea of a new town and a new job where I could use my skills to help others. A goal that had actually been on my manifestation list for a while. So in my mind, I was like, maybe this place could provide the fresh start that I need to pick myself back up out of the darkness. Sound familiar? This worked before. When I moved from San Diego to Northern California, I wonder if this could work again. So I pitched this idea to my boyfriend, and he was pretty adamant that he was not looking to move anytime soon, and definitely not to Texas. So I gave up on the idea for a while, and somehow it just kept calling me back. My depression was definitely not improving. I was going to therapy and I was spending lots of time and lots of money psychoanalyzing the identity collapse that was happening. And I could explain what was happening, but I didn't feel any better. In fact, I often felt worse. Like my overall sense of self and well being were steady on the course to deep sea. Fourth of July weekend came and we were camping with some friends at a spot on the edge of a big creek. And I had been drinking a lot, like I mentioned earlier. So this particular day I had blacked out and remember coming to sitting on a large flat boulder in the middle of the creek, sobbing my eyes out. And I think the reason that my brain came to was because my friend was calling my name from the side of the creek and asking if she could come join me on the rock. And when she did, I let it all out. I confessed how unhappy and confused I was, how guilty I felt for my father's death, how alone I felt, how similar I had painted my partner in my father's image, and now it felt like our relationship was doomed and disintegrating and I was causing all of this conflict. I told her about the opportunity in Texas and how I just couldn't explain it, but there felt like there was something there for me. And I admitted that 
something had to change or else I was headed down a really bad path. And soon, soon after that mid-creek verbal vomit, (laughs) I accepted the job offer and I started packing my things. And I was so nervous to tell my boyfriend because I thought that me taking the job meant us ending our relationship. And this is actually very typical trauma-based black and white thinking. I stay and we stay together or I leave and we split. No in between. This or that. And that inevitable reality really hurt to even consider. Yet I also knew how bad I was hurting in that moment and that at this juncture, I needed to choose me. I had spent so much of my life waiting for my father to choose healing, to choose himself, and therefore to choose me. This time, I knew I needed to do that for myself. When I finally broke down and told my boyfriend that I accepted the job and that I was moving to Texas, he was calm and present in a way I had never imagined he would be. He understood that this was something I needed to do for me, and he was confident that we would figure out how to make long distance work. My jaw was on the floor. That was not what I was expecting at all. I really didn't know how to process it when it happened, actually. What a poster moment of dropping expectation to experience the love and healing of here and now, because that was so loving and that was so healing, and I'm so grateful that he reacted in that way. I had planned to drive the 1,700 miles alone, but when I pulled up to say bye to my foster parents, my mom had her suitcase packed and told me that I didn't have to do everything alone. Mom is more than a title. It's definitely a verb. And I'm really glad that she hopped in because she soothed me through numerous waves of tears and quite a few thoughts of calling it off and turning around. Three days later, we pull into the Texas Hill Country and it's a lush canopy of green oak trees and wide flowing rivers. And the whole country is nothing like most people imagine when you mention Texas. It's actually a very beautiful area, a very alive area with gorgeous tall trees and flowers galore and wildlife everywhere. And my mom helped me settle into my apartment, which was only slightly bigger than a cocoon. <laughs> and then I took her to the airport and got ready for my first day on the job. And that first day is the first time I stepped foot in a hospital since I said goodbye to my dad. And the emotions were a little overwhelming, actually. I didn't expect it to be that way. But it basically felt like exposure therapy. <laughs> and that's really where the healing began because I uncovered that wound that had been really festering um, under under that mask of normal. And this was my chance to tend to it. And so this was late summer of 2020 when I finally got to Texas. And so that was in the middle of the pandemic. So there weren't really any events happening or ways to meet new people outside of work. And I only knew one person in town who was my best friend or roommate from college. And he was actually out of state on fires for most of the time that I was living out there. So uh, let's just say I got a lot of alone time in. Without the distraction of others, I was forced to sit with my grief, with my energy, and with my emotions and get to know them intimately. And I started journaling daily and meditating again. I hadn't meditated regularly since my divorce. 
I was taking long walks next to the river that flowed through town and I started practicing yoga again. And I found a rhythm in this realigned energy that brought clarity to the emotional blockages I was gripping onto so tightly. I didn't want to let them go because honestly, I didn't know who I was without them. But morning after morning, I would wake up at dawn, roll out my mat, just like I had rolled out my comforter in the office with my dad, and I would sit and breathe and tend to my soul. And within a month of this devotion, I found the strength to book a day trip to San Diego to tie up the loose ends of my father's death. And I flew out super early in the morning, and I collected his ashes from the crematorium. I scheduled an auto donation through St. Vincent de Paul and met the tow truck at his girlfriend's house to finalize the exchange. And it only felt right to gift his car to this charity because they had kept him warm and fed throughout the decade of him being homeless down there. I grabbed the last few bills and items from his girlfriend and held space for her grief because I could feel she was in quite a bit of pain. And that's when I realized how much love she had for him in his last few years on earth. When everyone else in his life had turned their back and raised the drawbridge to his pain, she was there. She was there, caring for his soul in the best way she knew how. And her love for him was the closest to my own. And without much thought, I grabbed the box of ashes from the back seat and gave it a big hug and handed it to her and said, You know best where he would want to be laid to rest. Thank you for loving him as much as I do. And with that, closure commenced. I kept to my devotional practices every single day. I was intentionally centering, grounding, and conducting my own energy. And with it, I began adding color back to my world. And I uncovered deeper awareness and inner standing of my dark night of the soul. I found acceptance of the divine orchestration of it all. I let go of resentment and I released many of the imprints and protective shields that had been blocking so much love and connection in my life. And I dedicated time to rewriting my sense of self and my purpose in this world. And as Jessica Hester said, we will never free ourselves on the outside if we are still in agreement with bondage stories on the inside. Finding the truth of who we are and choosing differently is the work. Two months later, I packed up my car and drove 1,700 miles back to California. And I returned a completely different woman than the one who left. And of course, there were noticeable changes in my appearance. I was smiling again, like full face smiling. I was full of energy and curiosity. My body was healthier than it had been in a long time. And my nervous system was relaxed. I was finding peace in my sense of self. And my appetite for numbing had waned substantially. And my patience for toxicity was zero. (laughs) The block option on social media became my best friend. (laughs) Because I wanted to connect in a new way. And I wasn't hesitant about doing so. I started a girls group with my neighbors, turned friends. Uh, The ladies of the forest is what I dubbed us. And uh, I hosted monthly book clubs and get togethers. 
that led to much deeper female connections than I had ever experienced, had ever let myself experience, because I learned not to trust women. I mean, if you go back to part one, that was my imprint. Women are not to be trusted. So I had to teach myself. I had to rewrite my belief system around trusting women and being able to open up and be much more vulnerable and trustworthy in that way. And I showed up to my relationship differently too, and therefore allowed him to meet me differently because I was curious and humble and wanted to reconnect without expectation. I learned to witness my partner in his essence rather than trying to fix him into the picture I wanted to paint. And this completely changed the dynamic of our partnership. And I kept steadfast in my devotion to meditation and movement and breath work and my energetic blueprints, getting to know myself on a deeper level. I literally became the creator of my life, the conductor of my own energy. And in turn, my life is filled with magical experiences and beautiful synchronicity and deep friendships and relationships that provide so much healing and growth in my life. And my perspective of self and the possibilities of my experience have expanded beyond the complex trauma of my childhood and blueprint relationships with my father, my mother, and my family. As Stephen Covey said, I am not a product of my circumstances. I am a product of my decisions. Devotion is a decision. Alignment is a decision. Healing is a decision. Expansion is a decision. My metamorphosis has taught me that you can choose differently. You can burn down your story and rise from the ashes if you choose you. And you can choose you. You can always choose you without need for explanation. You can heal your heart and you can expand your world exponentially with more love, more connection, more awe and opportunity than you ever thought possible. I know from my own experience how life-changing energetic healing is. And this is how Kindred Sage was born. I felt called to create a place to share this healing wisdom with kindred souls who desire deeper understanding of themselves and their place in this world. And just to close the loop on the job in Texas, I actually still hold this position. I've gotten promoted, but they took a chance on me three months into the job. They took a chance on me and allowed me to move back to California and work remote in our beautiful cabin in the forest. It's literally a dream. And another scenario that I didn't expect and couldn't have predicted, but has been so divinely orchestrated. That concludes my three-part series of my metamorphosis from caterpillar, tender and frightened from physical, emotional, and psychological abuse to the cocoon, uh, literally saved by my guardian angels who gave me a second chance at loving caretaker relationships and my healing reunion with my father after years of shielding my heart to this part, the cracking open of my safe and warm cocoon with the necessary decision to pull the plug on my own father and the crumbling that ensued 
followed by the butterfly emergence. Choosing myself, choosing my healing, choosing devotion, an immense expansion of inner and outer freedom and flow. Thank you for tuning in. I'm very grateful for you, you beautiful soul. Until next time, ciao.